Hello, ladies and germs. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to the brand new Tribe of Mentors podcast. For those who have no background on me, I'm an author, early stage investor in 50 plus companies like Facebook, Twitter, Uber, Alibaba, and many others, and the host of The Tim Ferriss Show, which is a long form podcast with more than 200 million downloads. Tribe of Mentors, this new gig, is an experimental podcast similar in flavor to The Tim Ferriss Show, but much shorter much more distilled. This is season one planned for 10 to 15 episodes. And instead of my usual two to four hour interviews, Tribe of Mentors packs a punch or so is intended in say 10 to 30 minutes on average and delivers tools, habits, and lessons learned from world-class performers in every field you can imagine. So you can think of this as a caffeine jolt of not just inspiration, but also tactical advice that you can use. The Tribe of Mentors podcast is largely adapted from my new book of the same name, Tribe of Mentors, subtitled Short Life Advice from the Best in the World, which details the routines, habits, tools of more than 130 people who are the best at what they do, including elite athletes like Kelly Slater and Dara Torres, legendary coaches like Dan Gable, at least a dozen billionaires and iconic investors, co-founders of companies like Facebook, Twitter, Dropbox, Craigslist, and others, poker and cryptocurrency, phenoms, and many geniuses you've never, ever heard of. In some cases, those are my favorites. And you can learn all about Tribe of Mentors at tribeofmentors.com. That's the book. Or find it wherever books are sold. But let's get into the audio interview. Hello, ladies and germs. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to a new episode of the Tribe of Mentors podcast. This is a special episode because there are multiple versions of this particular interview. And what you're going to hear are the answers to three of the questions from Tribe of Mentors, the book. Specifically, do you have a favorite failure that is a failure you have learned a lot from or that has set you up for later success? Number two, What is bad advice you often hear in your industry or area of expertise? Number three, favorite books. What books have you gifted the most to other people? And the guests for this particular episode also appear in full on the Tribe Mentors podcast, so their entire interview. And you can find a highlight reel of that interview on the Tim Ferriss Show podcast, which you may also know or have heard of. You can find that at tim.blog forward slash podcast. The guests are James and Susie Amos Cameron. So who are they? But let's go back in time to around 2009 or 2010, when I was given a t-shirt and the t-shirt was an avatar, as in the film, an avatar staff t-shirt. And on the front was a quote. And the quote was, hope is not a strategy. Luck is not a factor. Fear is not an option. It is attributed to James Cameron, who is part of the dynamic duo who will be featured in this episode. Who's James Cameron, you ask? James Cameron is a filmmaker and deep-sea explorer. He is writer, director, and producer of many films, including The Terminator, Aliens, The Abyss, Terminator 2, True Lies, Titanic, and Avatar. Both Titanic and Avatar, the highest-grossing film of all time, won the Golden Globe for Best Director and Best Picture and were nominated for a record number of awards. Cameron was also at the vanguard of the 3D renaissance, developing cutting-edge 3D camera systems. As an explorer in 2012, Cameron set the world's solo deep-diving record of 35,787 feet 
in the Challenger Deep in a vehicle of his own design. He is a dedicated environmentalist, and he has founded the Avatar Alliance Foundation to take action on climate change, energy policy, deforestation, indigenous rights, ocean conservation, and sustainable agriculture. He's currently in production on Avatar 234 and 5. You can find him on Twitter at Jim Cameron. Susie Amos Cameron, his wife, is a noted environmental advocate, mother of five, and the author of OMD, which is One Meal a Day. OMD, subtitled The Simple Plant-Based Program to Save Your Health, Save Your Waistline, and Save the Planet, and the founder of the OMD Movement, a multi-pronged effort to transform eating habits and the food system. She is also founder of Plant Power Task Force, focused on showing the impact of animal agriculture on climate change and the environment, founded in 2012 with her husband, that is Jim, and Craig McCaw. In 2005, she founded Muse School, the first school in the country to be 100% solar-powered with zero waste and a 100% organic plant-based lunch program. Additionally, she is founder of Verdient Foods, Cameron Family Farms, and Food Forest Organics, along with Red Carpet Green Dress. As an actor, she's been featured in more than 25 films, including The Usual Suspects and Titanic. You can find her online Facebook, Susie A. Cameron, that's Susie, S-U-Z-Y. Twitter, Susie Musing. And Instagram, Susie Amos Cameron. All right, so some of you who are long-term listeners have no doubt heard multiple guests on to discuss the ketogenic diet, to discuss uh, alternate approaches to food and health. And I thought that this episode would be a good opportunity to give some airtime to discussion of plant-based diets. And it should also be underscored that there are chapters in The 4-Hour Body, two of them, with uh, the legendary ultra-endurance athlete Scott Jurek about plant-based diets. And even if you disagree with uh, perhaps plant-based diets or any of the arguments you might hear from Susie and James, I'd suggest listening for at least three reasons. Number one, there's plenty of non-plant talk, and we jump right into it with discussion of, of how they both respond to feeling overwhelmed or distracted. The second is patience. In this podcast, I do my best to, in a gentle way, sometimes not so gentle, but often a gentle way, expose people to different viewpoints, different perspectives in the world, which is why I have on very often, for instance, someone who's highly religious, like Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, and then I will have just a few episodes later, someone like Sam Harris, who is PhD in neuroscience and very well known for being an atheist. I might have someone who is far left and then someone who is far right, because I like to focus on some of the commonalities and also the thought processes. The only way you can understand your argument, your position best is to also understand the opposing viewpoints. All right, so that's number two. This is an exercise in patience, especially in these divisive times. I think it is a worthwhile exercise. And third, OMD, one meal per day that is plant-based. Uh, I would recommend, even if you don't plan on converting to fully plant-based, as a consciousness practice and an exercise, which is something I very often do. I will, I will impose certain constraints on my eating, eliminate a certain food product, or I will insist that I eat based on a spectrum of color as a way to make my subconscious or automatic behaviors, i.e. eating, more conscious so that I'm more aware of what I am doing and the decisions I am making. So those are a few of the many reasons I would suggest 
listening to this. And without further ado, let's just jump right into it with Susie and James Cameron. How has a failure or apparent failure set you up for later success? Do you have any favorite failure of yours? Oh, well, I don't think I can answer that question because I've never failed at anything. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, I've been, I've been lucky on my, uh, on my directed films. I've only had one that underperformed, and that was The Abyss uh, that, wasn't, uh, that wasn't a hit. Um, I've had produced films that, that didn't do well. Um, and, you know, certainly learn from those. But the film, my, my film that, that I, I would consider a failure because it wasn't a hit. It was sort of a break-even project. It was quite big in its day. It was considered, I think, probably one of the most expensive films ever made in its time, uh, although it's nothing by present standards, was The Abyss, which was released in 1989. And um, I think I learned some strong lessons from that about the craft of of uh, shaping a story in post-production um, and maximizing it. And, and, and even in the writing, you know, I, I learned that, you know, from that film that the emotional peak came well before the ending, and then the ending was this kind of ambitious visual overreach. Um, and uh, I think I couldn't have made Titanic, and Titanic wouldn't have been a hit if I hadn't done The Abyss. Because uh, on Titanic, I kept the I kept the abyss in mind, and I shaped it to have the maximum emotional orchestration to the end of the film, and to keep the visual effects in check, so that they always served the storyline, served the narrative, and served served the characters. So it took it took that film took it took the abyss failing for Titanic to be the success that it was. I think I don't mean commercial success, but artistic success. Mm -hmm. Let's say. So yeah, you you have to you have to. It's all a journey. I mean, filmmaking is a journey. Every film itself is a journey. But then across the films, the kind of meta narrative that runs across the films is also a journey. Right, right. Well, I think uh, you know you always hear failing forward, and certainly when the school that I founded with my sister Rebecca Amos, uh, we founded a school called Muse School, and we decided in. January of 14, that we were going to take the school plant-based because it's an environmental school, and we couldn't call ourselves an environmental school and still be serving animal products. Yeah, it'd be like it'd be like you know driving a Humvee to work. Yeah, calling yourself an environmentalist. It just seemed like such a cognitive dissonance to us that exactly we had to we had to stand for something. Yeah, definitely. So we decided to take the school plant-based, and promptly created a mutiny. We lost 50% of our families, and I just thought – I thought the school was going to close. I yeah, didn't think it surprised. was going to succeed, and yeah. it was really nerve-wracking, and, you know, but it just felt like the right thing to do. And ultimately, in the end, we regained our enrollment very quickly, and we've now surpassed it, and families move from all over the United States. We even have a couple of families that have moved from out of country – to move to Calabasas to come to the school because it's environmental, because it's passion and interest-based learning, because it's uh, plant-based. So it's really about, you know, trusting trusting your instinct and your gut and doing the right thing, doing something that you think is is going to make a difference in Well, we life. talked about it before we did it, 
And uh, I think the final conclusion was, you know, screw it. If it tanks the school, it tanks the school. But you got to you got to stand on your principles. Because if you don't stand for something, you fall for everything. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, and the thing is that that you approach the problem very systematically, and you had spe- you you set a timetable to do it that was more than a year out, and you brought in speakers. You had a speaker series, and you had town halls, and brought the parents in and included them or tried to and but the people when you when you when you talk to people about their food it's like talking to them about religion or or you know part partisan politics it's it, it is. people get very in, entrenched in their belief systems and their identity sort of becomes defined by their by their beliefs and yeah. it, it, it's it, they'd rather they'd rather die than be wrong <laughs> they'd no. rather be unhealthy than be wrong or they'd rather have their kids yeah. be unhealthy than be wrong yeah and it's that, true you know, it, we took 18 months to to educate everyone and we really went at it from every different angle so we brought in doctors we brought in climate scientists we brought in chefs, we brought in athletes, we brought in authors, we brought in animal rights people. And we they would, they would spend the day with the children, and then at the end of the day, we would bring the adults in, give them a glass of wine and some beautiful plant-based delicious food. And even after all of that, we still had yeah, pushback. Well, it was seen as a top-down push, you know, yeah. it's a, and uh, even though you were trying to get buy-in. And I think a lot of that experience probably, if you're talking about failing forward, not only did the school prosper as a result, but if I can swing this back around to your to your book, I don't think you would have written OMD uh, the way you did, as inclusively as you did, uh, if you hadn't gone through that experience, because you realize how people are entrenched in a belief system that's enculturated. We all grew up with it. Our our parents taught us. Their grandparents taught mm-hmm. them, you know, um, you know, meat for strength, milk for bones yeah. and teeth and all that sort of thing. Well, that's a good point because what ended up happening, you know, after all of all of the work that we had done to to try to educate people and, and really give them a way into it, our head of school, Jeff King, got very frustrated one day with the parents and he said, PayPal, you can give them eggs and bacon in the morning and you can give them a burger at night. It's one meal a day. It's OMD. And so that's That's where where OMD came from. That's where OMD came from. It was born there, and that's when I took that idea and wrote a book around the idea of it. Are you down with OMD? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, but it's it's great. I mean, because it's it's inclusive, because it understands that people – I think they fall into two categories. You've got very closed-minded people that won't even listen. And then you've got people that have actually read enough and heard enough to realize that it would be beneficial to them but don't think they can do it uh, but, are, but are curious about it and maybe want to try it. And the great thing about OMD is that you know, it's one meal a day and if you make that pledge, not only are you cutting your, cutting your, your carbon footprint and your uh, environmental footprint significantly – but you're starting to feel you're starting to feel some delta. There's going to be some change in the way that you feel and in your health and so on. And you get to see how how relatively easy it is, and it's not that big a deal. The, the fear of it is greater than the actual process of of doing it. Well, and, I think that that's why it's such a it's a non-judgmental. It's not about perfection. It's just it's just one meal and realizing that how empowering it is for one person. To be able to make a difference in, you know, your carbon footprint and your water footprint so one person 
Eating one plant-based meal for one year saves 200,000 gallons of water and the carbon equivalent of driving from Los Angeles to New York. And people don't realize that animal agriculture is the second leading cause of greenhouse gases, more than all transportation combined. So you can make more of a difference for the environment by what you're putting on your plate than the kind of car you're driving. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, electrification of transportation system is critical in the long run, just like like changing to renewable energy is, is critical. But these are things that take time and uh, something you can do immediately, uh, instantaneously. You don't have to be able to afford to, to, to buy, uh, you know, a hybrid or a plug-in hybrid. Um, just change what you eat. It's very simple. It, it 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 brings the power back to the to the individual. Right now, you know, you're kind of living right with nature. You know that you're you're not you're not one of the millions of people that's responsible for cutting down an acre of rainforest a second mm-hmm. in Brazil, which is what's happening right now to make room for cropland. Everybody thinks, well, you know, why why are you know why is the footprint, the environmental footprint, so high for uh, cattle. It's not what the cattle are eating. It's not the water that the cattle are drinking so much. Um, It's the fact that so much deforestation and sort of misuse of land is taking place to grow crops to to feed the cattle, whereas the efficiency factor for humans Eating the grains and the and the the plants directly mm-hmm. uh, is you know depending on where the cattle are grown and who the people are and all that sort of thing. It ranges from twenty to forty times more efficient right. in terms of land use. I mean, if if everybody on Earth eats the way we do collectively here in the U.S., were to to do that, and our population continues to grow to nine billion as is projected by twenty fifty, we need four planet Earths. Right. We're already, we're already way into overshoot. We're already way past sustainability already with the number of people we have and with the number of people that are, that are still not eating the way we do. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a sort of a social justice aspect to it as well. If you think about it, those those people that don't eat like us can't eat like us. It it will not be allowed by the laws of nature. Right. So we're basically, you know, there's there's a social justice issue to this in addition to the environmental issue and the animal rights issue and um, and all that. So that's on the negative side. But on the positive side, the thing that's great about this is not only is your health going to improve, but you're if you're if you're an athlete or even even just a casual athlete, play tennis, whatever, your your performance is going to improve. Yeah, absolutely. Greatly. What are bad recommendations that you hear in your profession or area of expertise? Well, <laughs> the, the one recommendation that I hear all the time to, that's given to kids and everything is, is do what you love. And I would modify that strongly. Do what you love. That is also something people will pay you for. Right. <laughs> Which is what you have found out how to do. Yeah, right. Very I get, successfully. I get, I get to do what I love because I love making making films. Uh, I love all the things that, that, that I, I spend time on, exploration and all that. People don't pay you to be an explorer. No, I, I can say that. You you go do something that you love and make money. Then you go get to do something you love that people won't pay you for, like, right. a, like deep, deep ocean exploration because there is no money in that game whatsoever. Um, but you know, I, what other recommendation? Well, I mean, look in our, it, he, he didn't, he's the, the question was, um, your profession or field of expertise. So we right. know a lot about 
plant-based nutrition. So I'm going to vector it back to that. There well, are I so have many certification through Equal. Yeah, that's right. You're you're a certified nutritionist. Yeah. Um, so many bad recommendations in nutrition. Yeah. Uh, and doctors make them all right. the time. Doctors tell you to build yourself up by eating eating meat. It's, it's like, not their fault either. It's just the way they've been trained. Or not trained because they don't right. they don't study nutrition. I mean, I was talking to a doctor the other day. He's on a, a cardiology path. He's still still in university. I said, how much nutritional training have you had? Because I had said in a public speaking thing, they only get about somewhere between an hour and a day total of nutritional training through seven years of med school. And he said, about an hour. That's crazy. You know? Yeah. And so, uh, you know, doctors are, are, are uh, myth propagators these days, the myth that you need meat for protein. In fact, interestingly enough, the great vast majority of doctors conflate the term protein and meat. Right. Like it is one thing. Yeah. Certainly meat is a source of protein. It's about all that's in it besides protein and fat, as opposed to plants being a source of protein and a source of minerals and phytonutrients and micronutrients of all kinds and trace trace elements and all sorts of stuff. Um, but people don't think that protein is in, in vegetables. I mean, there's protein in iceberg lettuce. Where did the, where did the cow get it? Exactly. It's pretty simple, you know. Right. So you know the the truth with animal proteins is that they're they're not it's not just that they're inefficient for the environment and that they come packaged with an awful lot of fat, but that the actual biomolecular structure of the protein is not healthy for humans. We, you know, and I know there are probably a lot of a lot of paleo eaters in the in the uh, audience for this this podcast, but. You know, and you know, we all tend to to live in a confirm, confirmation bias kind of environment where we seek out the information that confirms what we want to know. But I would encourage them to look into what plant-based nutritionists are saying about about meat proteins and what r- real paleoanthropologists are saying about what uh, ancient humans uh, ate. But we're not adapted for a diet of meat. We can eat meat. Meat right. was a killer app back in you know back in the ice age when the plants were covered by snow all the time. You you could die out if you were a vegetarian. Uh, and when we when we collectively the human species migrated up into into northern Europe, which was you know where they were, they didn't have any competition. There was plenty of competition in Africa. As you started to move up into northern Europe, you got into virgin territory, and that's why we migrated up there. And lost our melanin, you know, got got pale skinned and and learned to adapt to the to the cold and all that stuff. Um, you know, you uh, you weren't going to make it through the winter if you were 100 percent plant based, which is why you don't have a lot of gorillas in in Scotland. Mm-hmm. You know, right, right. <laughs> so yeah, it was a killer app. It allowed the expansion of the human species, but we weren't adapted initially. Uh, evolutionarily selected to do it. That's a more recent kind of thing. Well, I think the other myth, too, is that, you know, men really feel like they need, you know, that meat protein in order to be manly. And you just had great success showing game changers to your whole crew down on the set of Avatar because it's full of elite male athletes. It's got women, female athletes in there as well. I got to just interject. The Game Changers is a film that Susie and I just uh, executive produced that Mm -hmm. was directed by Louis C. Hoyos. It's not out yet. But we think it's going to make a profound difference in this kind of male myth of 
of uh, meat proteins. But anyway, go, carry on. Sweetie. Yeah, because it's, it's you know, men believe that they need the meat to, to be manly, and it's quite the antithesis. Well, and you, you saw an unbelievable reaction with your crew. Um, you're the, the set of Avatar is actually the first plant-based catered set ever, and so yeah. they're they're doing one meal a day and saving an enormous amount of water and and yeah we carbon. give them we give them great food. It's about two hundred people uh, between our technical team and our our production group and so on. But now it's it's like there's a line out the door. Since well, you yeah, showed it was hysterical movie. because you know a year ago we went plant based on the production because we wanted to be the greenest production ever, and we have our own solar power. We have a one megawatt solar power facility on the roof, and the idea was, uh, you know, I sat the whole the whole team down and said, guys, if we're gonna if we're gonna make these films that stand for something about the about the environment and our relationship with nature, we have to we have to walk the walk. So we're going to do a green set. And the way to do a green set is the same way Susie did the green school. So we're going to go one meal a day. We're going to eat plant-based for our, for our lunch, and that's what we're going to cater. And, you know, it wasn't a dictatorship. People could always go across the street to any of the many restaurants in the, in the area, fast food joints in the area. It's in an urban area. We're not out in the woods. Uh, but if you want to eat the free food, then it's going to be plant-based. And hopefully you'll see that it can be not only – you know, nourishing, but but fun and yummy, and you know, we'll have Thai noodles, and we'll have lasagna, and we'll have pizza, and we'll have all the all the stuff you love. It just will be from plant based sources. So they've done that for a year, but you know, I mean, it it dropped down to where you know maybe we'd only have like half attendance at lunch. Um, the day we screened Game Changers, and everybody was asked to to show up. We did it on company time. Um, that that lunch. They ran out of food because everybody showed up. <laughs> we right. had so many converts after after seeing that film. And at least 20 people have come to me in the week since and said, I've made the decision. I'm doing this. I'm going plant-based. Or I'm going to do a 21-day challenge. Or I'm a weekend and I feel great. You know, all that stuff. It's a, Of course, it's all anecdotal. But, I mean, if we'd thought about it, we could have done a before and after study, a proper proper scientific study because we've oh, right. got a big enough cohort. We've got a couple hundred people. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, I know that the chefs are happy with, you know, everybody lining up to, to eat the yummy food. And it is. It's delicious. What is the book or books you've given most as a gift and why? Or what are one to three books that have greatly influenced your life? Well, we give a lot of books as presents because we're always evangelizing and proselytizing for plant-based nutrition and for the environment and sustainability and things like that. Um, Susie every year makes up a, a, a bag, a gift bag, right, uh, on a theme. But usually the theme is around sustainability, and there are always some books in there. So we give out a lot of books. Thousands and thousands and thousands of books. Right. So the publisher of the China study, for example, probably noticed a big uptick in sales about the year that we decided to send all our friends the China study and forks over knives. So when we when – we, I, I think this happens a lot with plant-based eaters that they become kind of like born-again you know, Christians, they they want to share the good news with everybody, so they become insufferable for the first <laughs> year or so. <laughs> yes, we were, definitely. And people would see us coming, and they would turn around and, 
run the other way. But yeah, waddle the other way. <laughs> <We've>, <laughs> if they follow our advice, they can run. Exactly. But I think we've gotten a little more tactful in our, in our approach. I think the other book that I've been giving out a lot is The Cheese Trap by Dr. Neil Barnard. Sure, because you hear so much, everybody says, you know, so many people say, well, I, I think I could do it. I could give up meat. Yeah, no problem. But I don't see how I can give up cheese. Oh, it's and, the hardest thing to give up. And that book is so go so great at showing, you know, why it is a trap, why it's basically an addiction. Right. So dairy, actually, all all mammals have naturally occurring opiates in their breast milk for a reason, because it keeps the baby coming back to nurse so that it will thrive. But if you think about a human baby growing from 7 pounds to 18 pounds in a year, and then you think of a cow growing from 60 pounds to 600 pounds in a year, you're getting that that much more, um, that Opiate. many more opiates. And you think about, so you're just having a glass of milk or cream in your coffee, but you have yogurt, and it's condensed that down even more. And cheese is condensed even further. So it, it's sort of bioconcentrating the, the natural occurring exactly. uh, op- opiates. And it's like a block of morphine. So, yeah, dairy's really difficult to give up. But there's so many alternatives now, way more than there were six and a half years ago when we went plant-based. Yeah. So, you know, so the alternative cheeses, the not, you know, the nut-based cheeses, cashew-based and so on. Are, Miyoko's. Are, yeah, are getting, are getting pretty good, and you can cook with them, and they, they have the same texture and mouthfeel and cookability and things like that. And that's all just within the last couple of years, mm-hmm. I think. So there is, I, I can't think of a cheese dish that you can't duplicate pretty well entirely from plant sources now. Of course, you're not getting your opiates. Exactly. But then you don't want to be a heroin addict either. No, but you've got a natural high from eating plants already. So yeah, right. You exactly. don't yeah, it makes up for it. Oh, exactly. good, baby. That was nice. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, in terms of books, I mean, I, I think this is, I think we're supposed to answer more broadly than just about our utter fixation with, with plant based nutrition. Um, another book that I've shared a lot is Sapiens which is an incredible book. It's got nothing to do with plant-based nutrition. It's just an amazing book. It explains human behavior and why we are the way we are in human civilization from soup to nuts. And it's a, 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 I'm, I've read it now a couple of times. It's, it's a pretty astonishing uh, book. Yeah. So I'm recommending that. Yeah, I think um, there's another book that I recommended so often, which was Ariana Huffington's book, Thrive. Thrive, yeah. Really, really. I mean, her journey of um, burning herself out and realizing how important sleep and self-care were. And it kind of gives you gives you license to take care of yourself in a world that, you know, people think that overachievers are, you know, type A, type triple type A, that you need to be that way to succeed. Um, so that's that's actually a really well. Great you do book to too. an extent, but you've got to be able to go the distance. So you got to pace yourself. And long term success is is definitely about pacing yourself. And mm-hmm. if I'm going to loop it back to to our favorite topic, <laughs> no, I mean the the kind of energy and stamina and recovery that you get from being a you know whole food plant based eater, right? Uh, it's what it's what's gotten me through a year of production. I've never done a year of production in my life. I've my you know. Titanic took six months to shoot. We just finished a year because we did uh, Avatar 2 and Avatar 3 back-to-back. And uh, that was one solid year of production. And, um, you know, I'm I'm feeling great. Yeah. You know, whereas before, I'd be completely burned out after a six-month shoot and require a you know, month to recover. 
Well, you got sick a lot on the first one. Yeah, Flues I got sick on Avatar. And... I got sick on Titanic. And uh, since we went plant-based six and a half years ago, I mean, I literally haven't been sick at all, like zero. Right. Not, a, not even a, a sniffle or a cough or a sore throat, nothing. Right. So, yeah, it works. Hey, guys, Tim Ferriss again. If you enjoyed this, just a little taste of this guest, then you will love Tribe of Mentors, the book, subtitle, Short Life Advice from the Best in the World, which details the routines, habits, and tools of more than 130 people who are the best at what they do. And you can pick and choose. It is a choose-your-own-adventure buffet, but you have just about everyone imaginable. And you can find free chapters, the full list of mentors at tribeofmentors.com and wherever books are sold. So take a look at tribeofmentors.com. Also, not to be missed, there's a bonus in text. So James mentions in the full audio that unlike on previous films, he did not get sick during the simultaneous filming slash production of Avatar 2 and 3, which is astonishing considering, as he put it, that, quote, they, meaning all staff, know coming in when they sign up that it's going to be the most difficult production in human history, end quote. So how did he do it? He credits his stamina and health during that period to his new routine, including plant-based diet, supplements, exercise, and so on. So I asked him for a concrete daily calendar with exact food, supplements, times, and so on, which he provided. So you can find James' super dialed-in daily routine for Avatar 2 and 3 at tim.blog forward slash James Cameron. That's tim.blog forward slash James Cameron. 